Welcome back to The Curbsiders. Hey, Matt. The internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. For your brain hole. <laughs> I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, Dr. Paul Williams and Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hey, guys. Hey, Matt. Hi, Matt. How you doing? I am doing quite well. Good. How's the family? <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking in this cadence. <laughs> I don't know either. I have noticed no. that sometimes I do that. It's it feels natural. Annoying. It's good. <laughs> it's not natural at all. Uh, You're just placating him. It's yeah. okay. I get it, Paul. On this episode, our guest is Dr. John J. Quarone. He is a radiation oncologist currently working at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. John did his undergrad at Stanford, went to medical school at Boston University, after that was at Memorial Sloan Kettering for his radiation oncology residency and is now there as an attending physician where he specializes in the treatment of lung, gastrointestinal, and breast cancers. He also uses brain radiation for brain tumors, and we asked him on the show to teach us about what exactly goes on down in radiation oncology, which is apparently located in the third sub-basement of most hospitals, and we wanted him to teach us about uh, some of the toxicities, both short and long term, that we should be looking out for as primary care doctors. I think this is an interesting discussion and certainly something that is relevant to your practice. So without further ado, please enjoy this discussion with Dr. John Quarone. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hey. <laughs> this is your host, Matt Watto, here with co-host Stuart Brigham. How you doing? And Paul Williams. Matt. And we are proud to introduce Dr. John J. Quarone. Hi, Dr. Quarone. Hello. John is a radiation oncologist from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in Manhattan Ooh, and also works on Long Island. And uh, he is here today to teach us a little bit about radiation oncology and talk, talk some cancer since as primary care doctors, we deal with quite a bit of that. Uh, not so much the radiation oncology, but the side effects and and a lot of cancer. Uh, John, I do want to ask you some some of our standard kind of rapid fire questions before we get into that. Are you ready? Okay, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> All right, count the timer down. <laughs> okay, John. When you are at a cocktail party, how do you answer the question, "What do you do for a living"? Um, well, uh, I think it depends on um, you know. Who is uh, who is asking? I think that you know first and foremost, I uh, tell people that I uh, am an oncologist that I take care of cancer patients, um, mm. and then I kind of watch for their reaction. And if there's a glaze over their eyes, then I kind <laughs> of leave it at that. Uh, but if they you know seem a little bit interested, then I uh, kind of get into the fact that I uh, treat cancer patients with with radiation therapy, um, and uh, and you know then go into uh, you know the the fact that I work on a you know multidisciplinary team with surgeons and medical oncologists, um, and uh, most importantly that I really love what I do. I don't think I was actually exposed to radiation oncology almost at all during my medical. Well, I training. hope you weren't. Did you have cancer? <laughs> I, I just, I, I meant as a possible profession. Oh. I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like it's like dermatology, one of those things they kind of hide away from people that you really have to be aggressive about seeking out that experience. So uh, aside from Nikola Tesla's autobiography, what uh, other wonderful books got you through those, those cold, stormy nights at the third basement? Um, so I think that, uh, well, let's see, I think that, that there's, a, there's one called Wool, 
it's a dystopian fiction type of uh, type of story that um, again just makes me feel very uh, safe and and comfortable coming outside of the New York subway, which is very hard to do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but after I read that, I just uh, you know I want to hug everybody in sight because I know that we're all still okay. Name your favorite medical app, like an Hippocrates. Uh, well, not not to get too nerdy, uh, but the, um, uh, the my favorite app and the one that I use most often is a app that allows me to put in um, radiation doses that people have received in the past, and um, you know whether depending on the dose that they've gotten and how many treatments that they've gotten, and convert it into um, an equivalent dose that tells me. Um, how much more radiation they can get to each of their each of their organs? Um, What's that it's, called? Uh, um, it's called a uh, EQD two. Okay, that which wonderful. is uh, uh, you know, by the way, a little bit of trivia. That's the name of a droid in the new Star Wars movie as well. <laughs> but the, uh, but the it stands for like equivalent dose of two gray or something like that. But the name's not important. It's just a great app. What is a hobby or activity outside of medicine that you are using to promote wellness? I like to sleep. Um, I think that that's, uh, you know, that's important. Um, you know, trying to make it outside. Um, it's hard to do in, in New York, but I think my wife and I are really trying to prioritize it at all, you know, in all seasons. We always try to take a, a vacation that gets us out of the city. Um, in New York, it's a little bit tougher, but I think we, you know, we try to do that regularly just to, um, uh, just to clear our heads a bit. I, I personally like to get about 12 to 14 hours of screen time a day. That's good. I, I wish that was a joke, but it's, uh, it's probably, <laughs> screen it's probably time. fairly accurate. You know, screen time. Like the like Ameri staring at your EHR? Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Like the Pediatric Society said that they, it used to be two hours. Now they've kind of upped it as long as it's educational. You know. Seriously? I didn't even know them. They recently changed it. Oh, yeah. wonderful. Okay. Um. Well, we, we sort of so already nebulous. started to scratch the surface of this whole radiation oncology thing, but I do want to, I, I do want to kind of take it from like the very basics. You, you already gave us a little bit about this, but it, let's say you're a patient in your first visit in the radiation oncologist's office. What sort of things would you go over with the patient in that, in that visit? Because I imagine that'll be helpful to our listeners to kind of understand what y'all are doing down there. Sure. Yeah, I think that um, you know one one of the most important things to start out with is to just try and gauge uh, you know what the patient's perspective and what the patient's understanding is of why they're there. That takes some time. Um, after that, I think I, I really focus on you know what radiation therapy actually is. I think a lot of people have some preconceived notions as to uh, you know what what they're going to feel, how we actually administer it, what the uh, side effects are, and and you know. Um, you know, what the, what the day-to-day -day treatments are going to be like. A lot of people have had family members that have had radiation before and, you know, techniques have changed. So I think that there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, fear and, and anxiety around what they've seen their family members go through that, you know, we try to uh, tease out and, and, um, you know, to, for, if we can, um, you know, put those, put those fears and anxieties to rest. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I think a, a huge, portion and a very important portion of the consult is to, um, you know, really show, uh, use like a show and tell type of model. I, I, we, it's very important for people to um, remain still and be in the right position every day for, for radiation. And we have different ways of, uh, of immobilizing people. Um, some of them are relatively medieval in their design. <laughs> and I think, uh, and I think that uh, seeing it, 
first before we actually try to, you know, strap it on to, uh, you know, to your face or strap it on to your chest, I think is, uh, you know, helpful with the adjustment period. And, you know, finally, um, kind of ending off things with, um, you know, telling them about what to expect, not only in the short term, you know, what they're going to feel during and directly after the radiation, but after they've, you know, healed from any or all of the side effects, what they can expect in the long term, what some of the long term risks to their bodies and their organ systems are going to be and and the things that we need to do to, um, to mitigate those things. I just want to go back to something you were saying. Are you saying that you make custom molds that are kind of restraints to help the patient stay in position during their radiation therapy? Yeah. So it, it, um, it depends on the, it depends on the treatment. There's, um, you know, there are some situations where we don't need to make any type of immobilization device at all. Um, you essentially, you know, you're treating such a large area, you're using such a low dose that you can really just kind of, you know, close one eye, stick out your thumb and, you know, aim the beam at where you, uh, where you think it should go and and give a nice big margin and not have any, um, you know, not, not need any type of uh, really accurate immobilization. Um, the other end of the spectrum is that, um, you know, we treat with extremely high doses of radiation, particularly in the brain. And, um, you know, if, if you really want to be as uh, accurate as possible and, you know, in some cases, sub millimeter accuracy. And so in order to do that, um, you really need to make sure that the patient, even if they're trying to move, is not able to move in any one direction more than a millimeter. Um, and so in order to do that, you, uh, you know, you, you use a combination of basically plaster of Paris and, and plastic mask that uh, kind of uh, goes over their uh, forehead, their chin, um, and straps down on the table, uh, the treatment table in, in several different locations. Uh, needless to say, you can imagine that there, I, I write a lot of prescriptions for Ativan, uh, right. because I think that's, that's uh, you know, that's, that's for, even for people that aren't claustrophobic, that can be a, um, that could be a, a little bit of a frightening experience. I had no idea about that part of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's surprising for, for people to find out, you know, what's, uh, what's really uh, funny and, and, um, you know, encouraging in a way is that, uh, you know, after patients are done with their treatment, um, a lot of them really, really want to keep the mask. You know, I mean, they, uh, they, they've gotten, you know, accustomed to, or they've, you know, they've gotten attached to it. I mean, it's, it's their, it's the most accurate representation of their face. I mean, it's, it's actually a, you know, kind of a negative sculpture of the way that their, their, their face looks. And, you know, after they finish treatment, that's a big milestone. So they kind of take that almost as a trophy. I'm going to come visit you in New York and, uh, John, you can make me one. Excellent. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll have a mask making party, man. That's do you, uh, do, do you let them keep the masks? Yeah, you, uh, we, we can, but most, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people just want us to throw them away, but, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, we can, yeah, it's not, it's not like a medical waste or anything like that. They're, they're welcome okay. to take them with it. John, is there, there, there was a recent article that I had sent out on Twitter about astronauts having, who, who were exposed to, I guess, solar radiation in, in space, having uh-huh. increased, increased risk of heart disease. And I guess it's kind of the same, same idea of, same mechanism there, where it's, it's the radiation that they're getting uh, from the solar rays in outer space, I guess, that aren't filtered by an atmosphere are causing that. But the, my, my real question is, are there, are there tests that we should be, should we be getting carotid ultrasounds? Or, yeah, carotid ultrasounds on these people. Should we be, be, we be more aggressive about screening them for heart disease when they're 10, 20, or 30 years out? Is there, are there guidelines for that from radiation oncology? 
There's not really too many guidelines. I think that the, um, you know, I, I think that we, you know, in my eyes and in, in talking with a primary care physician that's taking care of a patient that, you know, is doing well, but had, you know, breast cancer radiation or mediastinal radiation, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, um, you know, I almost treat that as a, you know, in an otherwise healthy patient as a, as a, um, you know, independent risk factor for coronary artery disease. It's as if this patient were a 30 pack year smoker, or it's right. as if this patient um, has uncontrolled diabetes. I think it's, it's the same pathogenesis. It's, you know, it's, it's um, fibrosis of the, of the arteries that lead to um, you know, that, that, that lead to, uh, 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 coronary artery disease and, and, and plaque formation. Um, so I think that it's, uh, you know, you can kind of think of it as almost, uh, you know, as applying the risk factors to somebody that's otherwise well taking care of themselves, non-smoker, non, you know, non-diabetic, but has this independent risk factor and apply the, um, you know, the, the, uh, treatment screening guidelines as, as appropriate. And one follow-up question to that, are there, the newer doses of radiation, I, hopefully things are always becoming more sophisticated. Is, is that radiation that's been given more recently, is that less likely to cause those long-term effects? Or are we still at risk, the same risk as we were in the 80s and 90s? I would say, um, you know, I can, I could speak to, uh, I could speak to breast cancer because I think that, um, there was a great article, um, uh, in 2013 in the new England journal of medicine that, um, that related the risk of, uh, uh future coronary events to, um, to the dose of radiation, uh, that patients had, had received, um, for treatment for breast cancer. And, uh, there was a very, uh, linear relationship with, you know, with a no threshold um, uh, relationship of, of coronary artery disease to dose. And what, what essentially what that told us as a radiation oncology community is that there's actually no safe dose that you can give the heart beyond which you're not increasing the risk of coronary artery disease. So now we try anything in our power to be able to minimize dose to the heart. You can imagine it's hard sometimes because, you know, patients have left-sided tumors and we need to treat the left side of the chest that uh, the, the heart is right there. And it's it's sometimes hard to um, you know, completely avoid it. But uh, we know now what we didn't know then, which is to say we can't send a beam right through it. And we can't just, you know, assume that treating their breast cancer and um, not paying attention to the heart is going to be, uh, you know, is, is going to be an ideal situation because these patients that we're curing are now, um, you know, at higher risk of, uh, of heart disease. So I think uh, to answer your question, it's not necessarily the dose, but I think that the, you know, the technology and the way that we're able to map out things and, and use uh, certain techniques to avoid structures is what really what's changed. John, I, I think, so we've talked a while about radiation oncology here. I, I think probably my last question for you is about just the short-term side effects, things that we probably as internists are seeing more often. And of course, we're seeing the long-term side effects, but the short-term side effects, can you kind of go through maybe the common conditions that you treat? So breast cancer, colorectal cancer, and maybe some of uh, the brain radiation side effects that we should look out for. Uh, for our patients who are undergoing treatment? Sure, yeah. Um, so I, I guess it's natural to start from head to toe. Or okay, head, sounds good. Head, head to anus, as it were. <laughs> um, so I think that the, uh, you know, for, for brain radiation, I think that really the, um, you know, the main thing to look out for on, you know, on both of our ends, whether it be the treating radiation oncologist or, you know, the uh, primary care physician that's seeing somebody that's undergoing brain radiation is that, um, you know, that there could be a localized reaction or even a, a, a widespread reaction in the brain of, of uh, you know, cerebral edema. 
Um, and, uh, you know, that can uh, lead to things like uh, nausea, vomiting, um, you know, headache, blurred vision, um, uh, unsteadiness on, on the feet. And I think those are all symptoms of uh, the fact that, you know, radiation causes uh, increased permeability of the cells and, and, you know, it's very tight real estate up in the skull. So anytime that the brain swells, it's very, uh, it's a very quick and, and uh, very dramatic, um, you know, reaction and, and patients feel very sick. Um, the mainstay of, of treating that is, is, uh, is steroid medication. So we, you know, typically use either prednisone or, um, you know, more, more than likely we need something stronger like dexamethasone. Um, and although it, takes some time to work, you know, anywhere from 24 to 48 hours, it's usually pretty effective about relieving all of the effects of, uh, of brain edema. Um, that's, that's really kind of the acute side effect that we, that we notice. depending on, uh, the, the size of the field that we're treating, uh, patients can also get, um, uh, you know, a little bit of skin redness, uh, very, very similar to a sunburn. Um, I describe it like a sunburn and I like that analogy because, um, you know, a, a, a sunburn, you don't really feel the skin or the sun, you know, burning your skin. It's not like it's hot on your skin and, and radiation therapy is not hot or painful or anything like that. But it's only after you come inside and then the days and, and, and nights afterwards that you kind of feel that your skin is a little bit taut or irritated and, and turns red. So I, I think it's very similar to a sunburn. Um, and, uh, and localized or general hair loss. Um, radiation is very effective about giving people haircuts as well. Um, it's, uh, it's temporary. The hair does grow back after a period of time, but, um, you know, we can expect it to expect it to fall out temporarily. So, um, uh, real quick, how quick, how soon after the, uh, the treatments do you start to see like cerebral edema, for example? Well, it, it's, um, you know, I've seen it after the first treatment. Um, you know, I think that the, uh, the, the, the effects that, 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 um, you know, vascularity permeability effects happen within a matter of hours. Okay. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, and it's not common to see that. And, and I think that the, the incidence of, you know, really symptomatic cerebral edema in that way is, is rare, but, um, you know, at, at rare at all for anybody. But, um, you know, I think that it, it, it certainly can have, it's at risk of happening even after the first, uh, you know, the first traction. And do you monitor them afterwards? Um, you know, not, not specifically. I think we really, uh, you know, I, I um, uh, after, after the treatments are over, I have, um, you know, the nursing staff kind of give them uh, a call a week afterward, um, and just kind of see how they're doing. Um, and then, you know, at the six week follow-up visit, I really, uh, you know, kind of ask them about any of those things. And, you know, cause sometimes they can go, they can be low grade. I have a lot of stoic patients that, you know, just de- decided not to bother us with a phone call or anything like that. But if you really, uh, you know, ask them and, and, and delve down deep they're you know, they're pretty uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, you, you, you kind of have to look for it. I think if, uh, if you're really going to find it. Is this going to be more likely to occur with the whole brain radiation or can it occur just as likely with someone who's getting a more localized dose? I think it's more likely to occur with whole brain radiation. Um, that being said, I, I think that the um, if you do get any type of edema or or, um, or swelling from you know localized radiation, um, where we give um, you know it, it roughly about eight to ten times the dose that we're giving the whole brain in one specific area, um, the effects of it can be actually a little bit more dramatic. I think those those that type of localized edema reaction is a little bit more at risk for causing things like seizures. Um, and, uh, and turning into like a focus of scar tissue, which, 
Um, you know, that's kind of the worst case scenario where, you know, and six months later, the patients come back with, um, you know, really bad cerebral edema, perhaps seizures. And, and on their MRI scan, they, um, you know, have something called radiation necrosis in the brain. Incidence of it uh, after uh, radio surgery um, is roughly about 10 percent. Um, and if it's non-responsive to steroids and doesn't resolve on its own, uh, most of the time we need to, uh, uh, use, you know, use a surgical resection in order to, uh, in order to remove that focus of necrosis. Okay. So going back to our journey down to the anus, what's the next thing? Um, <laughs> uh, so I treat, uh, I would, I would say the biggest, uh, uh, uh portion of my practice is lung cancer. Um, and lung cancer is a, it's a little bit tricky because, um, most of the patients that I'm seeing are those that are not, um, uh, are fit enough for surgery. Um, I think, uh, the, you know, the standard of care for, you know, early stage lung cancer for patients that can tolerate it is a surgical resection. But, um, if for those that don't have great pulmonary function or are, you know, 120 years old, or they're, you know, not going to, um, uh, not going to tolerate such a surgery, we can use radiation for those that have lymph node metabolism or stage three lung cancer, um, they need chemotherapy along at, you know, at the same time if they can tolerate that. And, and so that leads to a whole, uh, you know, bucket of side effects that, um, uh, you know, that include, you know, uh, watching their blood counts. I think the, um, probably the most problematic side effect as patients are going through treatment, um, it's unintuitive, but it's not, it's not lung irritation. It's actually esophagus irritation. Um, the esophagus is right in the middle of the, uh, of the mediastinum and, and there's no way if you're treating lymph nodes in the mediastinum, you need to give full dose to a portion of the esophagus and it gets very, very irritated. Uh, most, uh, most patients need at least some sort of, you know, protective coating in order to eat and swallow and, and keep their nutrition up. Um, roughly about a third of patients need uh, oral narcotic pain medication. Um, and back in the day, we used to uh, pull the trigger a little bit more, um, you know, more often about uh, putting a temporary peg tube um, in order to supplement nutrition um, uh, and have, you know, patients not have to swallow. But we're doing that less and less often now and just trying to get them uh, through conserv- conservatively and not, not putting peg tubes in. But that can be that's that's probably the biggest that's what I spend most of the time talking and preparing patients for is the uh, esophagus irritation from lung cancer. Could, could you be specific about the agents that you might use? You said coding agents. Are you talking about sucrophate or caraphate? Most of the time, we're you know we're asking patients every week, um, you know how they're how they're swallowing is, you know whether or not they uh, they have any any type of discomfort, and and it starts out very subtly. It's it's not pain necessarily. It's just a, kind of a globus sensation, uh, feeling like things are getting stuck in the throat, and and we're really you know quick to say um, let's go ahead and start caraphate now so that you know. If over the weekend or over the next couple of days it gets worse, um, you know, we kind of uh, get ahead of it. Um, so caraphate is first. Uh, we always want to make sure that patients are on, a, you know, some sort of uh, acid blocking medication, whether a PPI or, um, you know, some some other form of H2 blocker because um, that can irritate things as well. And then the next step after that is if we need to, we uh, go to, you know, some form of liquid narcotic medication after the caraphate. All right. Let's keep moving down. So what is the next next organ? Um, the next org, I mean, I, I, I treat a smattering of, uh, you know, liver cancers, pancreas cancers and, and, uh, gastric cancers. And I think, um, you know, really the big, uh, the big issue with, with treatment to that area is nausea. Um, you know, the stomach is, is, you know, particularly sensitive to radiation. Um, I think it's pretty, it's resilient, meaning it could take a pretty high dose, but, uh, before, you know, you cause permanent damage, but it's sensitive in a way that, you know, it gets its feeling hurt, feelings hurt, even if you give just a little bit of 
you know, just a, even a even a very tiny dose of scatter radiation, you can get you know pretty significant nausea. Um, so for a lot of these patients, we're actually using um, uh, uh, prophylactic Zofran, so antiemetics that you know we give even before the treatment actually starts, um, uh, and you know every day before the radiation treatment, just to try and get ahead of that. And I've heard I've heard a lot of patients say that they're fatigued after they get their radiation therapy. Is that just a generalized side effect you can get from any type of radiation? It is, and it's one of the like biggest mysteries about you know what actually causes it. Um, you know, I think it's you know generally we kind of pitch uh, radiation to be um, you know that the effects are all localized. So if I'm radiating your shoulder, or if I'm radiating your rectum, you shouldn't get nauseous. Or you know if I'm radiating your uh, your lungs, you know you're not going to lose your hair. But the fatigue is really the only thing that we see, that, which is like a systemic effect. And, um, you know, we, we think that it's just from a generally uh, like a general inflammatory reaction. Um, it it kind of it, patients kind of describe it almost like a jet lagged feeling or like a feeling like they have a cold or the flu. And so we think that, you know, perhaps there's some cytokines that are being released that, you know, evolutionarily tell you that it's time to like lie down on the couch and, you know, sit this one out um, uh, so that you can get better. But we actually don't know what the mechanism is behind that. And does that fatigue, does it dissipate or does it worsen as treatment progresses? It's It generally tends to be cumulative. So, you know, if, uh, it, it, it tends to get worse as treatment progresses. That being said, you know, I've never, I've never had to put patients on a treatment break because of fatigue. I think that they, you know, people are, are nervous about, um, you know, about how it's going to affect them and, you know, whether or not it's going to be debilitating. But I, I usually don't, I, I, I don't see that. I don't describe it as debilitating. I think that it, um, you know, it, it, one of the ways to combat it is to, you know, uh, I usually tell patients to keep physically active during treatment. You know, even just like a brisk walk at night, or you know, doing doing something, uh, you know, around the house, um, you know, is is enough to you know kind of get you into your routine. You kind of feel jet lagged, but you're not, um, you know, it's not like you can't get out of bed in the morning. That's interesting. That's been correlated directly with the actual radiation, because I would just think as you progress through treatment for any life threatening disease, fatigue is probably going to be a symptom that you report. Yeah, you know, I think that it's, um, you know, that that being said, it's, it's, you know, radiation kind of comes uh, sequentially in a lot of cases. So, you know, a lot of patients are uh, for, you know, the breast cancer treatment paradigm, they have their surgery, and they, you know, they recover from that doing fine, they have their chemotherapy, they recover from that doing fine. And then the radiation comes and they just say, wow, you know, like, I'm really, I'm really beat, or, you know, like, this is really catching up to me. Um, Interesting. And it's, you know, it, it, not everybody gets it. And it's, and sometimes it's very mild. I always tell the story of, I, I had one woman who swore to me that the radiation actually energized her, um, and, you hmm. know, gave her energy for the, uh, for the day. So I, I use that as an encouragement to patients that, you know, maybe, maybe you'll be number two. She turned into Godzilla and <laughs> <laughs> that's actually what, what Wano thought happens with radiation. <laughs> I, I think the last uh, the the last question that I have for you uh, you you just you just kind of mentioned breast cancer we didn't go through the side effects there I have seen a fair amount of patients with some localized skin like burns what is a good treatment for that because I I would I see that a fair amount in my clinic patients asking me what they can do and I'm like I don't know Vaseline or yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think we, we, we tend to treat it just like you would any, any type of other, you know, skin burn. Um, so we, 
uh, we initially started off with like, you know, some emollients like, uh, you know, Aquaphor or Eucerin. Um, you know, I think that important to recommend things that don't have any dyes or perfumes or, you know, um, bath salts or anything like that in them because that can really irritate the skin. And, you know, bath salts are their own bag of worms anyway. So I think... You mean like the kind they sell at not, Hot Topic? No, no, no. Not that. <laughs> not those bath salts. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think initially, you know, just inexpensive things that you can get over the counter. Um, I think that the, the, the typical pattern that things progress is that patients go from like redness and, and irritation to like a really itchy rash. And so we use, uh, you know, we, we can use like hydrocortisone or, you know, mometazone, which is kind of like a gentle steroid cream at that point. And then what you're describing, uh, Matt, at like the, um, you know, where, where things start to blister and, and the skin starts to break down a bit. Um, we use silvadine a lot. Silvadine's, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, kind of a burn. It's got antimicrobial properties that help, pr- helps protect the skin. Um, and it helps the skin heal a little bit faster. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that that's 95% of, of, you know, the, the patients are going to be fine with uh, 95% of patients are going to be fine with just those, um, you know, just those three uh, types of skin treatments. Um, I think that in the rare case where you have, you know, ulceration or things that, you know, just aren't healing, perhaps from, you know, uh, intrinsic radiation sensitivity or things like that, then, then you really need to get, um, you know, the surgeons involved to, uh, you know, kind of talk about whether or not, you know, we need to use hyperbaric oxygen or skin grafts or something like that. But I, I've, I've yet to see that. I think uh, everybody's gotten better with silvadine. Well, that's that's very helpful. I, I don't mean to focus so much on the side effects, but that's generally, as as internists, that's most of what we come in contact with. Uh, of as, course, that's the closest we get to you as radiation oncologists. That's by design. That's why we put our that's why we put our department in the basement so you can't <laughs> <laughs> next to the three hole punch computer. <laughs> I feel like there's a swing line stapler joke in there somewhere too. Uh, th- there, there is. We're not going to go there though. We're going to leave that one alone, Paul. In addition to your cats. John, I wanted to know what would be the three main take-home points that you want people to take from this discussion about radiation oncology. Well, uh, I think that, you know, first and foremost, I think that, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, assume that radiation is going to be hot or painful or invasive. And I think that, uh, you know, for the most part, radiation is essentially just x-rays. It's the same type of x-rays that we use for imaging, uh, but we turn the energy up a lot higher um, and we focus it to a specific area that we're treating. And because it's x-rays, you don't really feel anything while it's going on. And I think a lot of people are, um, you know, are surprised to hear that. Number two, I think that uh, uh, we, we as radiation oncologists probably follow our patients more closely than any other oncologists while they're on treatment. Uh, you know, we see patients at least once a week. And if, if things, uh, you know, come up, uh, you know, more frequently, uh, then, you know, I, I'm, I'm there to be able to see them kind of on an ad hoc basis. So I think that, you know, the other, th- the other thing that you can assure your patients about is that they're not, you know, going to feel alone in this whole, uh, in this whole process and this, um, you know, potentially uh, uh, intimidating environment. Well, thank you, John. I think this is I think this is going to be helpful to to our listeners and, and certainly to me to know what to look out for uh, when when my patients are undergoing uh, radiation oncology treatment. Um, because and I had no idea that you guys were making these cool masks for people, uh, which you now owe me one. Uh, we have you contracted a, a verbal agreement, contracted on air. So come by anytime, you guys. I'd be glad to make a mask for you. Okay, thank you. Paul or Stuart, any more questions or comments? No, no. And thank you for your time and expertise. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and don't forget to leave us a review. All right. We'd also love to hear from you, so please email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com or on our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, or on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts... Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, and good night. <laughs> and this is Paul Williams. Hey, Paul. Hey, Paul.